from Coimbra to Colombia, from Morocco to Miami. We tell the stories of the people who make the world of international law and business turn. We give glimpses into their lives and provide insights from their experience. These accounts come from every sector and every industry around the globe. Simply put, without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Hello, and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal. Y'all hear that hype in my voice? That is how stoked and jazzed I still am from our great last episode with the Arbitration Station. If you missed it, you should absolutely go back and check it out. It was last week's episode and it was so much fun. Also, before we get too excited and too far along, listen, we are about 200 downloads away from our big 10,000th download. That is a huge milestone that we are charging towards and I need your help to get there. If you wanna be part of this journey, make a post using the hashtag TOT10,000 on LinkedIn and tag the show. And if you want to be a real all-star, real baller, leave us a review on your podcasting platform of choice. Speaking of listener engagement, we are thinking of more ways we can hear from all of you. Of course, during the seasons, we only get to profile just over a dozen professionals at a time. But as you know, TOT is all about telling stories. So I want to tell your story too. That said, we're going to take a look at doing five to 10 minute profiles at the End of Disputes Digest on Fridays. The idea is to tell more tales and get to know the listeners of Team TOT. Hey, that's kind of catchy. I kind of like that. So if you would be interested in one of these short features, drop me a message on LinkedIn or better yet, shoot me an email at talesofthetribunal at gmail.com. All right, let's talk about this week's guest. This week's guest has had a significant impact on private international law and is one of my professional heroes and in fact was one of the sources of inspiration and encouragement, even if he didn't know it at the time, for me personally to go study in China and develop my international legal profile. I'm talking about Dan Harris, managing partner at Harrison Bricken and the founder and curator of the China Law Blog which is one of the leading sites on the internet for lawyers and business people thinking about doing commercial activity in China. It's a conversation full of wisdom, wit, and Bruce Springsteen references. This interview is a deep dive into building an international legal career with takeaways for anyone at any stage of their career. So sit back, relax, and grab a notepad and enjoy my conversation with Dan Harris. And we'll check in on the other side of the show. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law, dispute resolution, and business. With me today, I've got a very special guest, someone who I've known or at least been communicating with for a number of years and who is, I would say, at least somewhat of an internet celebrity. Um, With me today, I'm talking with Dan Harris. Dan, welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. Glad to be here. Great. And so... For those of you that don't know Dan, and Dan, uh, we'll get into this a bunch during this episode. Dan is the founder of a little blog called the China Law Blog. Um, you know, for me, as someone that was, you know, interested in going to China for a number of years, this was one of my first sort of gateways into being interested in doing business and studying in China. And so the China Law Blog was one of the great resources that I used a lot in preparing to do so. And um, and Dan is also the founder of the law firm Harris Brickin. So, Dan, as we get ready to start today's conversation. Um, I'd like to introduce you to my audience. Who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know? I'm Dan Harris. I'm originally from the thriving metropolis of Kalamazoo, Michigan. I am now based in Seattle, Washington. And so you're still in Seattle. You're still in Washington, from what I understand. Can you fill in the gaps here with the origin story? Um, Where did you go to law school, for example? Well, I'm a Midwesterner at heart from Michigan, married a woman from Illinois who I met in Iowa while going to college in Iowa, then went to law school in Indiana and started my career at a mega firm in Illinois. And to further cover the Midwest, my father got his PhD from Ohio State. So 
I'm a Midwesterner at heart. I was going to say, before you said that last part, I was going to say, you know, being a Michiganer, uh, Michiganer, are you hail to the victors or is it because your dad went to Ohio State? Go Buckeyes. None of those. I went to law school at Indiana, so I'm an honorary Hoosier. Okay. I'm much okay. more of a basketball fan than a football fan, so it's worked out just fine. Well, sure. No, um, they, they always, Hoosiers have always got a good squad. So then, so you went to law school. What, what drove you to go to law school? Did you always know you wanted to be a lawyer or what was sort of uh, the idea there? Yes. Growing up in Kalamazoo, not a big city, I saw that the lawyers seemed to have the most impact. And, and that made me want to become a lawyer. And when I was a junior in high school, my father, who was a college professor, we went to Istanbul for his sabbatical. And I was just so fascinated by living in a foreign country that I decided I not only wanted to be a lawyer, but I wanted to be an international. And that was your, your, your own sort of segue into wanting to be an international lawyer. Now, tons of law students around uh, the globe sort of have a similar interest or think that they may want to go into international. Um, when a young Dan Harris sort of had that same revelation, how did you go about it? I mean, did you sort of call up uh, whoever was running the, the China law blog 30, 40 years ago or, or the, the Istanbul blog at the time? I mean, what was the, that journey sort of like? Or how did you start, start making your way there? I had no idea what I was doing. None at all. I just had this okay. weird desire to practice international law. And everybody I spoke to said there's really no such thing. So I ended up going to Kirkland and Ellis in Chicago because I also had an interest in antitrust law because I very much liked economics. So I did antitrust law there for many years, then went to Seattle, and eventually I started representing a large Canadian truck manufacturer on their litigation matters throughout the United States. And then I started helping them on their litigation matters around the world. And that was my first realization that, hey, maybe there is international law out there. And I kept trying to get more of it from various different clients and it worked. And, and I actually think that's a fairly common path, meaning if you graduate from law school now and you go to a big firm and say, I want to do international law, they'll say that's great. And then they'll train you in either litigation or corporate, figuring that you need to learn those first, and then you can add on the international component later. Well, sure. I mean, because I think it's kind of hard to do it the, the reverse, right? It's hard to kind of jump in right at the international law level and then say, oh, I'll go figure out how to litigate things on the back end. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, OK. Well, that makes I think that makes sense. So I, I'm getting an understanding. You know, you're from the Midwest, a Midwest uh, through and through, went to law school, um, started doing some international, started doing some uh, litigation work at Kirkland and Ellis. And that sort of was your gateway into international law. So then I guess the question would be, where did the pivot come into China? How did Dan Harris find himself being such a uh, so knowledgeable about China and China law? Well, that's a long story, and I'm going to try to make it short. We've got time. <laughs> OK, well, I'll, I'll take a couple hours. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> so what happened was that I started, along with two other lawyers, we started a small firm, gosh, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago. And the goal was to be very international. And I had this big truck company as a client truck manufacturer. One of the other lawyers represented Caterpillar Financial, and another lawyer represented a huge Korean table. Together, we were going to form an international law firm. And almost as soon as we got started, we got pulled into a massive matter involving three vessels that Caterpillar Financial had loaned huge amounts of money on. And those three vessels went to Russia. Therefore, it would be very difficult to get them back. And we told Caterpillar Financial we could get them back. And 
we worked on it for about a year and we got them back. It was the cover story of the Wall Street Journal. And then all of a sudden, we became known as the law firm that could collect debts in Russia. So all these maritime companies and banks and finance companies started contacting us. And from there, we figured out that one of the best ways to recover money from Russian companies, especially those in the maritime industry, would be to arrest their vessels, seize their vessels when they came into the ports in Korea or Japan, mostly Korea. Korea is an amazing country for that. We once arrested, I think it was about eight ships worth maybe $800 million. And we did that by posting a bond for maybe $60,000. And for the debtors to get those vessels released, they would have to post a bond worth double the value of the ships. So we started arresting a lot of ships in Korea. And I was in Pusan, Korea, working for a large fuel supply company and waiting for a Russian vessel to come into Pusan. And at the last minute, I learned that it wasn't going to be coming into Busan. It was going to be going to Dalian, China. So I'm sitting in Busan thinking, I can't just have flown over here and just fly back and tell the client, whoops, sorry. So I, using contacts, connected with a lawyer in Dalian, China, and she was fantastic. Uh, a maritime lawyer, wonderful person. Her daughter and my daughter became pen pals for many years, commiserating over Barbies, trying to learn each other's languages. And we prepared to arrest this ship that was coming into Dalian. Well, at the last minute, the ship didn't come into Dalian. It came into Qingdao. So she connected me with lawyers in Qingdao. I flew up to Qingdao nearly missed my flight because I didn't realize that they had changed the gate, but got to Qingdao. And there I became good friends with the lawyer who we were using for that case. This was in the heady days of China when anything was possible. This person's a fantastic lawyer. He came from a family of 15 kids. His parents had third and fourth grade educations, and he went to the best law school in China and had helped form a terrific law firm in Qingdao. We spent days driving around, looking for the ship, talking with judges, etc. And the ship came in and we arrested it. And we became friends and vowed that we would need to do business together. And I got back to Seattle and immediately talked with Steve Dickinson, who was at that time teaching Chinese law at the University of Washington Law School. And somehow or other, I convinced him to go live in Qingdao, and the rest is history. Ever since then, we've done a lot with China. Wow. No, that is quite the story. Um, <laughs> picking out picking out the one grain in there uh, before moving along, uh, or you know, talking further about it, you said you, the, the 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 guy that you had met in China had gone to the best law school in China. I assume you mean Tsinghua University. I meant Beida. Oh my goodness! Well, Dan, I think we're gonna have to we're gonna have to cut this one short. Uh, no, hey, that, I, I'm joking. That's like arguing between Harvard and Yale. Yeah, that's right. That's that's true. Um, <laughs> no, that, that that's that's a really interesting story. Back then, I think Beida was widely considered the best. Now, there's definitely an argument. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, and, and for those that uh, they don't know, uh, they're literally separated by one street. I mean, you can <laughs> you can you can literally walk out the gates of Tsinghua University um, straight across the Beida. Um, just wait for the red light because you don't want to end up in a you know traffic situation. <laughs> um, OK, so so that's how you got started with China. But I mean, even from there, I mean, even with those sorts of experiences, I mean, you kind of really took it the, the, the extra mile. I mean, it's one thing to have a matter that relates to China and have some business related to China. But from there, you decided to start a blog, the China Law Blog. I mean, how did that come to be? Well, we started doing China business and we were still doing a lot of Russia business. 
But China business was falling off the trees. People would call us. I can remember getting a call and someone called us and said, I want to set up and do business in China. And my answer, my response was, what kind of business? And he said, you tell me. I mean, that's how desperate (laughs) people were to get into China. Yes. What I would tell people back then is that if we spent one hour of effort trying to get China work, we'd get five matters. If we spent five hours of effort trying to get Russia work, we'd get one matter. Folks started focusing on China and our China practice took off and our Russia practice stagnated and eventually pretty much disappeared because of deteriorating U.S.-Russia relations. We did have a dead cat bounce when the U.S. instituted sanctions. All of a sudden, people started coming to us trying to figure out what to do, and we helped them with that. But Russia is just a tiny fraction of our international business these days, and China is a huge portion of it. Well, sure. Okay, so that makes sense then, and that, I mean, explains the numbers. And and I would guess then, coming out of that, that the China Law Blog was sort of an opportunity to establish thought leadership or to kind of do some premium sort of marketing. Is that kind of the thought there? And again, I think you're giving me too much credit. The way the, China, <laughs> the genesis of the China Law Blog was that I had a good friend who was involved in PR basically just starting out. Now he's actually a banker. And he said, you know, I've been reading about these blog things and it seems like you should have one for China. And and I'm like, I don't know what they are. Seems too technical for me. You go to this big event you're talking about. You come back and tell me whether we should do something and if so, what we should do. And he went to it. We paid for him to go. Uh, We didn't pay him anything beyond the cost of admission. And he came back and said, you need a China law block. And I'm like, okay, how do we do it? And he helped set it up and we set it up and we just started writing. And it was not really with the plan of getting more business. It was just to get visible and to learn more. And in the early days, it was a huge amount of fun. Because there were all these other good bloggers out there. There was somebody doing uh, China PR. Will Moss is his name. He's now very high up at Intel. But he was in China at the time. There was someone doing China history. There, were, there was another blogger, law blogger, Stan Abrams. And all of us became friends. And we'd meet when we were in China together. And we would link to each other's posts. And... The PR, the communications person might write about a communication snafu in China and then urge Stan or me to weigh in on the legal side. And we both would and we would comment on each other's blogs. And it, it, it was fun. Sadly, those days are gone. Most of those bloggers stopped blogging. Most of them have left China. China's not fun anymore. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of tension. And so now our blog reflects that. A lot fewer jokes, a lot fewer references to Bruce Springsteen or Bob Dylan, a lot more. This is what you need to know if you are going to survive China. Well, sure. And, I, and I'm curious more about you know the, the operations of the blog. Um, but it, But it almost... You know, I, I, got, I kind of segue or pull us back for a second to where we started the conversation. You know, I recall it must have been, you know, 2010 or 11. Um, I came across an article um, on the China Law blog about wanting to um, study law in China or wanting to be a, a China lawyer, so to speak. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and there was some some thoughts that was kind of like, well, I mean, it's a very particular path or, you know, that those things. um it's not as easy as kind of just showing up in China and hanging out your shingle like that. And I found that to be endlessly helpful. And I, I wonder, I guess, does that was that phase, I guess, back in, let's say, 2010, 11 or 12, still in sort of the, the shift shifting area from the Bruce Springsteen jokes to the more this is what you need to know or what era of the blog was that? Well, that era is the blog itself, meaning we still 
try to write about what's important, what's current, and also we try to be helpful to anyone doing anything with China. And one of the things that we do, and, and we have been adamant about this since day one, is we cannot view the blog as a way to generate business. Now, the reality is it generates a lot of business, but we have to be truthful as best we can, even if it's going to quote unquote hurt our business. Now, a story about hurting your business. I was on CNBC, I think it was, when I was interviewed when Russia basically seized all of Yukos's assets. And mm -hmm. I was asked whether that would impact foreign investment in Russia. And my response was basically, well, duh, yeah, of course it will. <laughs> Who's going to rush to invest in Russia right now when they know that the government could seize all of their assets? It's going to have a massive impact. And I got back to the office and our Russian paralegal was furious with me. She said, you just cost us a huge amount of Russian business. And I said, no, I didn't. If I had lied and said, no, I don't see how that would affect any company going into Russia. Russia's a great place to do business. People would have said, who is that idiot? Who is that liar? That's not who I want as my lawyer. And so that's how we view the China law block. We are, I hate to say this, but I'm going to use the word happy to emphasize. We are happy to spread bad news. We are as happy to spread bad news as good news. We try to be very neutral. And so when you talk about our series on how to become a China lawyer, we wrote that because law students were always reaching out to us and asking us that question. And we figured, look, let's help us put it up there and we'll also get fewer calls. But not that long ago, we did a blog post that I view as similar, which is we said, do not become an English teacher in China under any circumstances. Don't do that. Pretty much every place else in the world is better. And we got a huge amount of heat for that. But we also got a lot of people who said, yes, this is exactly what's happening. And the thing is, people think we represent English teachers. We have never once represented an English teacher. Never. And yet we wrote that article. Well, and I will tell you, I mean, I have my own anecdote about that. Um, I had a, a good friend of mine from uh, from school, from college had two offers, one or maybe it was three, one to teach in Japan, one to teach in China, um, one to teach in Singapore. And the China offer, you know, seemed like it was better. I guess they made her some nice promises about the, the pay and the accommodation, all these types of things. And I had just happened upon, you know, I had just talked with her and then I happened upon this article from the, from the law blog and I forwarded it along and she took the job in Singapore, couldn't be happier. <laughs> Good. Good. I <laughs> I, I wrote that article in a paternal way because my youngest daughter recently graduated from college and my eldest daughter graduated from college as well. And when I write articles like that, I actually think of my daughters and think, how many 21 to 25-year-olds am I helping here? And it actually makes me feel good. Now, not that many blog posts on the China Law Blog do that, but that one did that. Uh, and, and that was also a factor in writing. And so it feels good to know that somebody made the wise choice of choosing Singapore over China because of that post. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, you know, again, exactly. I would tell you, um, I, I think that that person would have taken China were it not for your article. So, um, you know, great, great job there. Um, turning back to, to, to lawyers just a bit and I guess kind of springboarding from um, those of us who have waded into the world of being China lawyers or knowing at least something about China, for lawyers that may end up with a China-related matter, what would you say the the key need-to-knows are? I mean, be, bearing in mind that you have plenty of articles and and posts on that topic, I mean, when you hear someone that says, hey, Dan, I think we're, I'm going to go try and stake my career in China, 
what sort of thoughts would you give to that person, that wide-eyed person? Okay. It sounds to me like you just asked me two questions, so I'm going to break them down. The first question you asked was, I've got this China matter, what should I do? And my answer would be, run. And what I mean by that is, unless you have been dealing with China for years or are working with someone who has been dealing with China for years, you taking on that matter is a walking malpractice case. We see so many instances of that, I cannot tell you. Probably once a week, someone will call us wanting to pursue some claim against the company in China. And I tell them, you don't have a claim against that company in China. I would advise you to contact your local plaintiff's malpractice lawyer in South Carolina or wherever, or Florida or wherever you may be, because I think you may have a claim against your lawyer. Like I said, that happens at least once a week. It's, it's unbelievable because China is, and you know this, Chris, its legal system is very different from the U.S. legal system. And I actually believe it is set up to make life difficult for foreigners, while at the same time <laughs> written in such a way that you can blame the foreigner if they get in trouble. Because if they do things 100% correctly, the odds are they won't get in trouble. But it's very difficult to figure out what 100% correctly means for China. So I would tell that person not to touch it. Now, if someone wants to become a China lawyer, I would tell them, go to the best law school you can, do as well in, in law school as you can, go to a firm that does China law and figure out what aspect of China law you want to practice and get embedded in that department at the firm and keep pushing for China legal work. Nobody in the United States would say, I do U.S. law, because what does that mean? You can't do U.S. law. We can say we do China law, but the reality is we do only limited matters involving China. When you start drilling deeper, we say we do China business law. And then drilling even deeper, we would say we do China business law for foreign companies, meaning we have never represented a Chinese company in China. Why would we? Well, no Chinese company should hire us for that. Our expertise is knowing the law and the reality as it relates to foreign companies. And even there, we're not expert in everything. We don't do patent work. We don't do complicated China tax work. We don't do complicated China customs work. We don't do China bankruptcy work. We don't do China antitrust work. We do a lot of core business work. We have a lot of clients that have one to five in-house lawyers. And a lot of what we'll do for those companies in China or in other countries around the world is the sort of thing that they would do in-house if it were in Peoria, Illinois. So that's a lot of our work, just basic corporate transactional work, ranging from something as simple as reviewing and revising a an office lease agreement to drafting an employment contract for someone in China. That's a lot of our work. Then we also do a lot of specialized work for really big companies. We do a lot of movie, entertainment, gaming, and music work for big companies and small companies. But that work is very IP focused, meaning the big studios hire us to figure out does this book that they're going to be buying or the licensing rights to this book that they're going to be buying, does it real, do those rights really belong to the person, the family member that's trying to sell them? Uh, we'll get hired for that, but that same company will not hire us to do their billion dollar M&A deal in China because even though we actually have lawyers who have done those deals, we don't have the quantity of lawyers to be able to pull it off. So an M&A deal in China, we do those, but it's usually a $50 million, $60 million deal for a mid-sized U.S. company 
that's buying a manufacturing company in China or something. Well, well, sure. And I, and I appreciate you breaking it down the way that you did. I did ask you two questions, and I think that, that uh, <laughs> your answer there sort of kind of neatly cuts through uh, to both of them. And I think that that's good advice. It's well said. You can't ask a uh, what's the expression in a deposition when when you ask two questions. What, what What's the wor- word for that? Do you remember that? A compound question or something like compound that. Compound yeah. question. That's yeah. Objection. Compound question. Yeah, that's right. Oh man, see, you got me in my own podcast. See, see. <laughs> um, well, uh, you know, shifting just a little bit, but still talking um, China. Uh, I wonder, are there any trends from the Chinese legal community or the way that China lawyers practice that are starting to sort of uh, bleed out or sort of seep out into the greater legal community or how different markets operate? Have you seen anything like that? Wow, that's a great question. And it's something I've never thought about before. China legal trends that are bleeding out. By legal trends, if you mean law firms and lawyers, I would say, think of any. Because what I see happening is Chinese law firms are becoming more and more, and, and I guess this is a, I guess this is a trend that's bleeding out into the entire world. China, there are some very good Chinese law firms, big sure. Chinese law firms that are very international, and they are becoming very much like big U.S. or British or whatever law firms that are international, and so we are seeing big Chinese law firms opening up offices in the United States. And 10 years ago, a lot of the lawyers they brought on to those firms were not top-tier lawyers. Nowadays, they're getting very good people. And Chinese law firms in China are bringing on very good people from other countries as well. So internationalization is happening to Chinese law firms just as it's happening elsewhere in the world. And that is having an impact in that when we first started doing this 15, 16, 17 years ago, people would say, well, I'm thinking of using this Chinese law firm for this. They're a lot cheaper than you. And we would say, no, 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 don't do that. Now they could say, we're thinking of using this Chinese law firm and we'll say, okay, here's the difference between us and them. And hey, guess what? We're actually less expensive than them. So <laughs> it's it's really changed. We view them, we view Chinese law firms as real competition. But at the same time, they're also we also have relationships with many of them. We'll refer work to them that we shouldn't be doing. They'll refer work to us that they shouldn't be doing. In fact. We get a lot of work. It's it's amazing how much non-U.S. work we get from Chinese law firms because we have a very strong Spain practice and a rapidly developing Latin America practice. And Chinese law firms, including those firms that we don't have prior relationships with, reach out to us to help them in those parts of the world because they have come to trust our abilities based on the China law blog, and they know us better than XYZ law firm in Mexico, let's say. So it's that that I find very interesting. Well, sure. And I wonder on that last point that you mentioned, Dan, if if the interest in Latin America has to do with sort of the continued expansion and winding road that has become Belt and Road, even finding itself there. I wonder if those two things are connected. Yes, some of it. But we tend not to get that work, meaning that we're not going to get a massive mining deal in Chile. What we're going to get, and it certainly helps that our lead Mexican lawyer is completely fluent in Spanish, English, and Chinese, among other languages, we get Chinese companies that are saying, I've been making these widgets in China. 90% of my buyers import them into the United States. If we set up in Mexico, we'll eliminate the China tariff 
and will reduce shipping costs and will be quicker to market. We, how do we do this in Mexico? That's the typical Chinese client that we're getting. Interesting. Um, it's, it's very interesting. It's very interesting to work with those companies because it is not easy because they, we've represented Chinese companies in the United States and that's also not easy because Chinese companies, just like American companies, when they go overseas, they want to operate as though they've never left their home country. And in the sure. United States, we were very clear. Look, you cannot do that. This is the United States. This isn't China. If you want to operate like you're in China, use Chinese lawyers. You've hired us because we know the United States. You have to trust us on this or fire us. Um, we say the same thing in Mexico, but we get more pushback because people say, oh, come on, this is Mexico. Just go, go bribe this government official. And we're like, no, that's not how we roll. And if, if you want that, don't use us. You, you hire a lawyer to do things legally. If you're going to push money under the table, don't hire a lawyer. Yeah, you don't need a lawyer to do that. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> you don't. And my, guess, and my guess is, Dan, you probably don't look good in orange. That would be my guess as well. And it will remain a guess because I have no intention of experimenting with that. Well, absolutely. Um, no, again, that, that all of that is the, it's endlessly fascinating. Um, I wonder, like, talking about things that are interesting, do you have any interesting matters or any interesting sort of projects that you're working on right now that you'd like to discuss? Yes. And um, they are very relevant to this podcast because they are litigation matters. And one of the uh -huh. things that is interesting about pretty much all legal practices is that they tend to evolve. So whereas, let's say, and I'm going to make up the numbers here, but guess as best I can. Let's say three years ago, 30% uh, of work was helping companies get set up in, uh, and doing all the legal work that comes from uh, having a new company in China. That practice has tanked. Companies are not calling. I, I talked about how they called us up wanting to go into China without even knowing why. People don't call us wanting to go into China nearly as much anymore. We, we did our first company formation in a long time uh, a couple of months ago, and we've probably gone five to 10 of those a year, one to two. So, so that has really changed. But as we lawyers always love to say, good times are good for lawyers. Bad times are good for lawyers. The only times that are not good for lawyers are when nothing's changing. Change is good for lawyers. There has been a hell of a lot of change with China in the last two or three years. And there's been a hell of a lot of change in the China-US relations in the last two or three years. And this is something, Chris, I know you know very well, bad times are great times for litigation. And our <laughs> litigation practice has shot through the roof. And we represent a country in their litigation matters involving China, or we represented a country. We represented the government of Haiti suing a construction company in a massive lawsuit involving the building of the airport in Haiti. And I can talk about this because it was in the newspapers. What's also interesting about the case is this also fits with your podcast is how we resolved it. We okay. were dealing with a Chinese law firm that had a Chinese American lawyer and the uh, various different agreements, they called for mediation. We were talking about where to mediate, and I did not think the case could settle. Even if we found a mediation, I didn't think mediation would work, but the Chinese side wanted to mediate. And so we were trying to figure out where to mediate. And this was when it was getting very difficult for Chinese citizens to come into the United States. It was pre-COVID. And 
So I knew if we suggested Seattle or New York or whatever, I, I, if we suggested one of those two places, I figured they would say no. So we had the brilliant idea of suggesting Mexico City. And they came back and suggested New York, which shocked us. But then they said, rather than mediating with a mediator, let's do it without a mediator. I thought that was a terrible idea, but they insisted on it. So we all went to New York and we mediated without a mediator. And we mediated for three days and we settled the case. And I give a huge amount of credit to the Chinese law firm and the Chinese American lawyer because we went into that mediation and we, the two sides did not like each other and they had fought hard the whole time. We went in there with both sides vowing to try to settle. And I was just hugely impressed with the way the Chinese law firm handled it. They were very good lawyers. They worked on the technical side. They worked with their client. We did the same and we resolved it, which really shocked me. And then from that, we now are involved in another case for the government of Haiti. And again, I can talk about this because it's all over the media in Haiti. And it also was written about in one of the big arbitration journals. It's a dispute involving supplying fuel to Haiti. And it was a Haitian contract written in French that between the government of Haiti and a Haitian company. And it called for arbitration in New York. And we are fighting to get the case removed from arbitration in New York because we're arguing that it's not an international contract. It's governed by Haitian law because it doesn't say otherwise. And it's between two Haitian entities. And the Haitian government is not allowed to arbitrate domestic disputes under Haitian law. And there are various other arguments we're making as well. So what's also interesting, and, and this I view as sort of typical American lawyering, they served notice of the arbitration in English on this Haitian government official, even though everything is in French. And it was served in English and the contract says that the party that brings arbitration gets to choose the first arbitrator. And then after the second party's been given notice, the defendant essentially has been given notice, that party has 10 days to choose the second arbitrator. And those two arbitrators choose the third arbitrator. Well, the government official who got this notice didn't understand it. But over to anyone who did for more than 10 days. And so by the time we got it, there were already three arbitrators, all essentially chosen by the claimant slash the plaintiff. And we're oh fighting my. that as well. I mean, it's 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 so much American arrogance, meaning- Was there I an appointing authority there or, or what was the, how did they appoint just unilaterally three arbitrators? Well, the plaintiff chose the first one, and then because we didn't choose the second one, the plaintiff chose the second one. And then those two arbitrators chose the third one. But to me, okay. it would be like my serving somebody in Seattle with a complaint and the service in the complaint are, writ are written in Russia, right? In Russia. That's not going to fly. You can't do that. And that's essentially what they did. And to well, me, sure, I mean, it's, it's, it, yeah. I'm sorry. It's incredible. Yeah that a big U.S. law firm would think that way. Well, you're absolutely right, Dan. I mean, if aside from just the point that you've raised there, I mean, I think that there's a number of issues and questions as to due process and, um, you know, <laughs> the one side getting to a point, essentially the entire tribunal, and then being, you know, wanting to, I'm sure, enforce an award that was appointed by their own judges. I mean, that's that seems certainly to just not make any sense on its face. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So that we're working on some very interesting arbitration matters for for them. And then what we're also seeing is 
We're also working on a number of matters involving deals gone bad. We represent a company that was very much involved in training Chinese participants in the weekly, in the weekly, in the winter Olympics. It's a good thing the Olympics aren't weekly. They've had a lot of disputes with Chinese companies involving the Olympics, and we've been handling those. And one of them, our client was sued in arbitration in China, and that matter got resolved. And then we're all, we're also working on what started out as a huge, huge matter, but now has been greatly reduced because of settlements. We um, represented about 90 Chinese plaintiffs who lost $500,000 each in an EB-5 project that went very bad. We sued all the EB-5 project people, but more importantly, we sued the bank, claiming that the bank had breached its escrow agreement. What was interesting there is that the bank had took in a huge amount of money um, in basically roughly, let's say, $50 million, and they got paid almost nothing for acting as the escrow agent. And in my view, they treated the matter like it was almost nothing in, in the way they drafted the escrow agreement. And it, it was a really interesting case because we filed for summary judgment and we actually eventually won on the summary judgment. Or actually, it's not, now that I think about it, it's not clear that we won because we, I think I believe that our most of our clients had already settled, but there was a law firm that represented a few stray clients and they took our motion. I think they ended up winning on it. We argued that a lot of the provisions in the escrow agreement violated public policy because there were provisions that essentially said, hey, no matter what we do, we can't be liable. (laughs) We sort of analogized it to to ski lines and say, you know, no matter what we do, we can't be liable. Well, yeah, that's somewhat true, but there are limits to that. You can't shoot somebody who's skiing down the incline and not be liable. Whoa, nah, nah, no, totally fine. I mean, you know, if I just say I'm going to contract to do something and then I wave, you wave everything else that I don't have to perform. I mean, that's totally fine contract. <laughs> exactly. We we learned what what is that failure of consideration, right? Yeah, <laughs> no consider no contract without consideration. Um, right. Yeah, that, that that's still true from contracts 101. Uh, you know, first year contracts. Um, and I. I'm going to have to start relearning that stuff because my youngest daughter's in law school in the fall. It's really in her heart and her bones. She really wants to do it. She's been working at the Northwest Justice Project for going on two years, and she really likes that kind of work. And so she's sincere about it, unlike back in my day when I went to law school, where most people went just because they didn't know what else to do. Yeah, or they want to get some cushy, uh, you know, big corporate job and get a big fat check. So that, that you know, that's sometimes the things you hear people say <laughs> about why they go to law school. Before we shift away from uh, the practice of law properly, Dan, um, I can't I can't let you get out of here without doing a little bit of uh, soothsaying, so to speak. You had to guess or to the extent you can. What predictions do you see for the evolution of China law and China law over the next five, 10 years or whatever time frame you want to set? Okay. I would say that it's going to stop growing. It may already have stopped growing. Uh, what, what I've been saying for three or four years, again, without solid evidence to back it up, because I've never really gone through our numbers, but I feel like every year we have 10% fewer clients than the year before, fewer China clients than the year before, but 20% more revenue. And that's because the tire kickers are gone. And mm-hmm. a lot of the smaller ones are gone as well. If you're going to do something with China, you had better be serious. The easy 
pickings are over. And so you're right or you don't bother. And, and to do it right, it's more expensive and fewer people are willing to do it. And so that's what we're seeing. And I had to continue. I expect it to accelerate. One of the things I've been predicting for years now, uh, if people like, would like to say that I'm wrong on it, but I refuse to admit that yet. Um, give me another hundred years and I might. I'm kidding. Uh, but manufacturing is leaving China and that is going to accelerate when COVID is over. Uh, when Trump ended the tariffs, when bad relations really started between the U.S. and China, back in, I think, October 2018, we wrote a blog post saying, this is the new normal. It's not going to change other than getting worse. Maybe only one of our clients believed it. A company by the name of Centris, X-E-N-T-R-I-S. And I can name them because they were written about in the U.S. media. Centris decided that they needed to get out. And they had maybe 10 centers in China. They got out way, way faster than I would have ever imagined they could have. But other than that, most of our clients and most American are of the mindset, and I get it, because once you've been, when you've been successful at something, it's hard to switch. I grew up in Michigan. People would say, oh, you're from Michigan. What's the story with those idiots at General Motors? And I would say they're not idiots. For, you know, 50, 60 years, they were killing it. You can't just expect them to all of a sudden say, you know, what's worked for us for 60 years, we're going to abandon in whole force and switch. It takes time. That's why um, there's always room for startups. It's hard to do a complete pivot. And most of our clients and most companies, including those that have been badly hit by the tariffs, kept taking a wait and see attitude. We have clients would say, well, you know, I'm, I'm interested in leaving, but I'm not going to look seriously until this happens. And the last until this happens was until the results come in from the 2020 election. 98% of our clients believed on some level that Biden would remove the tariffs within a week of, of getting into office. Now they mm -hmm. realize that's not going to happen. And they're very worried. They're worried about that. And they've also seen what happened with COVID. COVID was a disaster. A lot of companies that manufactured in China, but a lot of China factories went under. A lot of China factories couldn't deliver. And a lot of companies lost a huge amount of money. And a lot of companies went under. Companies have seen that and they don't want it to happen again. So COVID is, has told them, wow, this thing that we always read in the Harvard Business Review about the benefits of diversification. Yeah, that really does make sense now. And then the fact that there are the China tariffs. So we have gone from our clients saying, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to see what's going to happen. We'll, we'll, we'll consider it at some point to saying, when COVID's over, we need to sit down and talk. And we are seeing companies that are moving their manufacturing from China to Thailand, from China to Taiwan, from China to Mexico, et cetera. And a lot of those companies are shocked at what they're finding. Uh, a lot of them have moved from China to Thailand and they're getting their widgets for less. They're getting their widgets without the China tariffs and they're getting higher quality widgets. Now, it very much depends on the product. A lot of companies have said, you know, we're thinking of moving from China to Vietnam and Thailand. And I look at what they're making and I think, wow, I didn't even know a company like this was still making that sort of widget in China. They should have moved out years ago with everybody else. So some of these products, it's super easy. Example I always give is jeans. Um, 
China was the number one exporter of blue jeans to the United States. In less than a year, it became number four. Mexico became number one. I believe it's Vietnam became number two. Sri Lanka became number three. And I suspect it wouldn't surprise me if Cambodia is now number four and China is number five. Why did that happen? For all the reasons I just mentioned and the fact, obviously, it's not difficult to find good suppliers of blue jeans outside of China. So for companies that make blue jeans in China now, I would ask them, why are you still there? Now, maybe they have some good reason, but there's also a chance that they don't. So that's the product on one end of the spectrum. Then there are products on the other end of the spectrum where it's virtually impossible to have it made anywhere else. Or we have one client where I I said, are you impacted by the tariffs? And they said, "Eh, not really. We pay 10 cents to have our product made in China and we sell it for $8. And we're the only one in the market because of the patent. Uh, So, you know, yeah, we could reduce our cost by 2.5 cents per widget, but it's not worth it. You get, you'd get some strange ones like that. But there are a lot of companies out there that are going to be very serious about moving out very soon. And China knows this, and they're, they're trying to stop. Wow. Well, um, if, if any of the listeners want to to hear more of this this sort of crystal ball gazing and more about what that timeline sort of looks like, they'll have to subscribe or follow the China Law Blog. Dan, leaving the China Law Blog there for now and, uh, and shifting away from the world of law, perhaps, I like, I'm going to ask you some questions that I'd like to end the show with and uh, that are sort of rapid fire questions. What are you reading right now? What kind of uh, books do you have on your shelf? Well, I, I look to my right and I see a book, Birds of Washington. But that's not mine. That's my wife's. Um, what am I reading now? I tend not to. I do not read a lot of books. I have to confess. I am a news junkie. I read everything in the news. I'm fascinated with COVID. I read uh, a lot about um, COVID. The last book I read was the book Unbroken, which was about the American track star who was a prisoner of war in Japan. He died recently, and the book was made into a movie. It was an excellent book. Sure. You know that, that that's a great one. Um, before shifting from that, what are your fa- you say you're a news junkie. What are some of your favorite sources? I, I don't care about the politics of the source. I care about the accuracy. I read the New York Times. I read Atlantic Magazine. I read the Wall Street Journal. I actually pay for Apple News, which uh, gives me access to a lot of publications. I read The New Yorker. I even spend three or four minutes reading The Seattle Times each day. Oh, well, news starts locally. I mean, that's a, that's a good one as well. <laughs> and then uh, sort of an offshoot, what kind of music are you into? Um, what are some of your favorite groups? Well, I'm going to date myself here. Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, Marvin Gaye. Those are probably my three favorites. Bruce Springsteen definitely being number one. Okay. So, yeah, I got that. That makes sense. Um, are you are you not a, mu- a musician of any kind? Do you play any instruments? Absolutely not. And the, re- the reason I say it so emphatically is because my older brother, who is actually now a stockbroker, was a terrific jazz pianist who toured professionally for many years and my father was a very good singer and so people say to me oh you must have musical ability and I assure them that I do not and I know that I don't because I tried and failed (laughs) and actually that's a lesson I always teach people which is it is better to try and fail and know than to Think in the back of your mind, hey, if I had only done this, I would have been the next Marvin Gaye. I wouldn't have been. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm happy to say it. Yeah, no, that's the, I think that's fair enough. Um, so, so Dan, I've, as we're winding down here, I've got just two uh, final questions for you. 
um, or well, we'll say three. The last one's kind of quick. Um, the first one is um, now that we find ourselves in the age of working from home, and maybe you were doing some of this even beforehand. Um, how do you sort of balance the division of uh, work work life balance, so to speak? I mean, how do you maintain that in these times where work days can kind of feel longer and we can kind of feel like we're always on the clock? Good question. It has become more difficult, even though before COVID, I would work from home one or two days a week and would travel freely with my family for pleasure and work from wherever I was. But it, work and home do definitely bleed more together now. One of the ways I do it is by carving out time, meaning unless there's an emergency, I am not going to work after dinner. I'm going to plop down in front of Netflix with my wife and watch something for an hour or two and then read. Uh, that's one of the things I do. Another thing I do is I am fanatical about staying in shape. I try to work out five or six days a week. I try to go for two to five mile walk on top of that every day. I think it's not only important to stay physically active. I think the, the importance of this is not decline. But it was it felt more important before I had both my Pfizer shots from my hometown of Kalamazoo, Michigan, by the way. I had to get that in there. I feel it's important to get outside every day. That was one of the bigger issues was not getting outside as much. So now we walk in the rain, whereas uh, pre-COVID, there were a lot of days where we got, oh, it's raining too hard. But I think it's very important to not let COVID completely dictate what you do. No, I think that's that's very wise. And I think, um, you know, Dan, we talk about the day we'll be able to meet face to face. I think you might have just signed up. I mean, we might have to go to the gym, you know, you know uh, knock some squats <laughs> and some big press out. <laughs> I think you're younger. J- just just a bit. Uh, but I, I'm sure, look, if you're working out five, six days a week, I might have a hard time keeping up. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, um, we'll yeah, yeah, we'll have to. Um so uh, one more question I did want to get your thoughts on, Dan, as we're wrapping up here is um, if you were approached by uh, a current student, recent graduate or someone that's looking to break into we'll, we'll go more broad than China, we'll say international law. Um, you kind of touched on this earlier. What would be your advice to them? You should be international already, meaning that even when we hire staff. We are looking for a certain mentality. And by that, I mean, I think there are two kinds of people. And one is not better than the other. Let me be clear on that. But one is better for being an international lawyer. There's the kind of person who wants nothing more than to go to their same cottage at the same lake every year. That's one kind of person. Then there's the kind of person who says, you know, it would be fun to just go to Havana and spend three weeks there. Or it would be fun to go to Papua New Guinea or to some country where I don't speak the language and have to figure out what to do there. We like the latter person. I went into international law because I'm fascinated by the world. I'm fascinated by other cultures, other languages, other ways of doing things. That's what we're looking for. So even when we're looking for staff, we always put in the ad, foreign language is a big plus or something like that. Somebody will say, you know, I lived in Ecuador for three years and I'm fluent in Spanish, but I know you don't care because you have a million people who speak Spanish. And our answer is, We do care. If we wanted somebody who spoke Urdu, we would have put that in the ad. We said we want somebody who speaks a foreign language. We don't care what it is. The fact that you lived in Ecuador for three years means that you you cannot help but realize that not every part of the world is the same as the United States. And that's not a good or a bad thing. You're not going to be the person who says to our client, oh, your name's uh, Oleg. Do you mind if I call you Frank? That's difficult to pronounce. <laughs> so there's such a there's such a thing as an international attitude. We need that. We don't want nationalists. We don't want people who 
who think the U.S. way is the only way of doing things. And, and, and let me be clear, I love the United States. It has nothing to do with that. I'm not denigrating the United States at all. But we can all learn from each other. And, and I think that that is the most important thing you need if you really are serious about being international, being an international lawyer. We look at people and say, are you international? If somebody comes to us and they've never done anything that indicates an interest in doing in, in the world, then we're going to be very skeptical. Sure. No, that makes sense. Um, and well said. Dan, any shout outs, any tips of the cap that you want to give before we get out of here? Yes, I'd like to give a shout out to all the people at my law firm, Harris Brickett who have helped us build up the international practice we have. We have people who speak all sorts of different languages and who are truly fascinated with the world, who, who view handling a matter in a strange country as the height of fun. Oh, that's a great shout out. And, um, and I, I'll, I'll echo that sentiment. Look forward to meeting uh, some more of those uh, colleagues of yours in the days coming soon. And unfortunately, as I said, uh, when we were kind of in our pre-chat, uh, the hour has kind of just flown by, Dan. Um, and uh, and I think we're, we're at the end of it, but we want to appreciate you co for coming by and thank you for coming by this digital studio today. Thank you. I am Dan Harris and there is no disputing it. You are listening to Tales of the Tribunal. Thank you. And we will see y'all next time. So long. Listeners, you still with me? That was an action-packed segment, huh? So much good info and a ton to take away, learn from, and apply. It was great to catch up with Dan, and we hope he'll stop by again sometime. If you liked what Dan had to say, you can check out his blog at the China Law Blog, which has daily posts about business and law in China, and more recently, as you heard Dan mention, tips and thoughts for doing work in Latin America. Hmm, let me see if the Latin America Law Blog URL is still available. <laughs> anyway, thank you for listening. Again, if you're interested in doing a mini feature, drop me a line at talesofthetribunal at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, and we can see if we can have you on the show. If you're a fan of the Vismoot, you absolutely cannot miss next week's episode. We've got some interesting folks coming through the digital studio that we think will give you a unique perspective from the moot. Ooh, cliffhangers, mysteries. Tune in next week to find out who it is. Tales of the Tribunal is produced by MoBeta Solutions, and the show music is done by Joshua and Jaden Campbell. Show interns are Matthew Cochran and Ramatulahi Jallo. Feedback and comments for the show can be sent to talesofthetribunal at gmail.com. That's it for this week, and don't forget, there's no disputing it. You're listening to Tales of the Tribunal. None of the views shared on today or any episode of Tales of the Tribunal is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any person or party for their appearance on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees appear on an arm's length basis, and their appearances should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.